G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. More and more challenging situations are arising around the world, placing Christian believers in vulnerable positions because of changing political and religious oppression. Now, whether it's the 100 million believers feeling the pressure under China's communist dictatorship having churches closed, leaders arrested, invasive surveillance or orders to pull down crosses and religious symbols, or whether it's the intensifying religious persecution happening in India, as Hindu nationalism has very little tolerance for Christianity, or the ongoing issues that come from oppressive Islamic regimes who don't tolerate any other religious belief and are especially aggressive towards Christians. Well, connections between people like you and I, free believers like us here in Australia and those who are called to endure what we'll describe today as a fiery furnace because they refuse to bow the knee are more important than ever. More insights today as we unpack ways that we can resource persecuted Christians in the fiery furnace. And who better to help us unpack these ideas today and to give us an update on what's happening around the world than Ashley Saunders, who is the CEO of Barnabas Fund in Australia. Ashley Saunders, a special welcome along to 2020. Uh, Thank you, Neil. It's great to be with you and uh, great to be with your listeners. And uh, this is my first time in your new studios. And so congratulations not only to you, but to the whole of the Vision Christian Media Organisation. For those listeners uh, who have not had the privilege of seeing these new facilities, let me assure you, listeners, that uh, uh, there's been a lot of stewardship in this and there's been uh, wonderful opportunities that the Lord has given to Vision Radio. And uh, I'm sure that uh, this is a good sign for what you're doing. Thank you on behalf of all of your listeners around Australia, Neil, for the role you play in leading 2020 and encouraging Christians around the country to have a conversation about matters that are very important, matters that they probably can't speak with in any other context, uh, a conversation they won't hear uh, on other radio stations. This is a very important service, and thank you to you and to the whole of Vision Christian Media. And as you know, Ashley, uh, we always give honour first to God and certainly to those listeners who have stood alongside Vision over these last 20 years and seen the development to what it is today. And uh, thank you so much. And I'm getting used to it already. It's like day-to-day activity. This has become commonplace for me sitting in this wonderful new facility, which we call our Vision Headquarters. And as listeners will know, the idea of setting this in place for the next 30 years of what God will do through Christian media and the vision, of course, for every Australian. So thank you so much for those uh, complimentary words. And uh, let's get into our conversation here, Ashley. You know, earlier this month, I think it was the 5th of September, uh, your organisation, Barnabas Fund, launched a brand new resource And it's the reason why I invited you to come in and talk to us today, because resourcing 
what happens for people who are under the pressure, under the pump in persecuted situations. This is what we want to talk about today. And one of those resources, of course, is by way of encouragement and flow of information so that people who are in those contexts can understand what's going on in the free world and so that we in the free world can understand what's going on in those persecuted contexts. What's the take-up been like so far for this new Barnabas Today resource? It's been very encouraging. And so the resource is an online resource called Barnabas Today, and can be accessed by barnabastoday.com. And uh, the intention there is that this is not just about uh, news, this is about spiritually resourcing Christians globally. And perhaps later in our conversation, we'll talk about how that's a two-way flow of information, about how that it's not just uh, voices uh, for those who are persecuted, but it's also voices from those who are persecuted and how their voices can contribute to you and me and to our listeners' uh, spiritual growth. So it's not a a news line. It's a spiritual resource where you'll find uh, devotionals, Bible studies, sermons, uh, videos, and uh, over time we're hoping that there'll be songs and, and other resources on this thing, and not just in English, not just from whitefellas, Uh, But already there are resources uh, from people in South America and India and Africa. And so we want this truly to be, in a sense, the voice of the global church to resource the global church. Let's talk context here because we're talking about something that is very significant, very large, pervasive in so many contexts around the world the way that Christians are increasingly under the gun, under the persecution for their faith. And when you mention Africa and you mention South America, and in my introduction I mentioned China and India and those nations that are under Islamic regimes, persecution of Christians is growing. If you're being general, how do you describe that to people who are inquiring about Barnabas Fund? It's growing in ways that I guess we can expect, but also in ways that we don't expect. And even though I think most of your listeners would think of persecution in the contexts that you have mentioned, I don't know that many of your listeners would automatically think of persecution within the context of countries like Uganda and Nigeria, where there is a predominantly Christian population. So in Uganda, for example, where Christians are around about 80% and Muslims are only about 12%, even in a country like Uganda, when people convert from Islam, when they find Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, they are persecuted. And in countries like Nigeria, now let's get some context here. Nigeria is not only the most populous African nation, it is said to be the seventh most populous nation in the world. So we're talking here about a significant population. It was once said that there were more Christians in Nigeria than in the whole of Europe put together. And yet in the last five years alone, more than 6,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria, whether as a result of Boko Haram Islamist uh, militants or because of uh, Fulani militants in Kaduna State. And so even in countries like Nigeria and Uganda, where there is a substantial majority Christian population, there is growing persecution. And, of course, we talk about those persecution contexts, and we can add to that those contexts where growing communism 
uh, is also an oppressor of Christianity because communists are, uh, by the, the fact that they are communists, uh, anti-spiritual, anti-God, and therefore uh, would dismiss Christianity as just a thorn in their side, uh, and then oppression comes from that. So communism as a political uh, way of of oppressing Christians also a very severe thing in so many nations around the world. Y- yes, it is. And again, uh, your older listeners, and that is me, and I guess uh, those who are older than me, would well remember the role that Christianity played in breaking down communism, first in Poland um, and then throughout Eastern Europe. And so, uh, in a sense, there's a very good reason why communists are anti-Christian, um, uh, because they recognise that there are spiritual forces at work that they can't control. And uh, and yes, so in those communist regimes, we are finding that there is increased uh, uh, persecution, even, for example, in China. Uh, you mentioned China, and uh, it is well known that there are established registered three self-churches, above-ground churches that are approved by the government, and then there are house churches or the underground churches. But even the above-ground approved registered three self-churches, people in those churches are increasingly finding themselves controlled by the government. So that, yes, you mentioned removal of crosses. Um, What um, is also happening, for example, is that some church buildings are being demolished. Uh, In one case, it was demolished under the pretext of having to put a road through. In another case, the church building was demolished under the pretext of building a canal. So there's the demolition of buildings. There's also the control of the leaders. So that in one, again, we're talking here about above ground registered three self-churches that are doing everything by the government rules. They wanted to appoint their own leaders, and instead the Communist Party said, no, we're not going to accept those leaders. You're going to accept the leaders that we appoint. And so even with those above-ground, registered, approved three self-churches, there is increased intolerance by the government, increased control of the congregation with a view to wiping out Christianity. In China, you've got the state-sanctioned church, the three self-churches, and you've got a huge underground church that resists this idea of being government-controlled, and it is growing super substantially. Uh, When I mentioned in the introduction, as many as 100 million, some people even think that's actually now quite a conservative estimate. They say the numbers are much bigger than that. But when you've got state control of religion... It gets even more serious when you go to the worst persecutor of Christians on earth and uh, people will say, which nation is that? And of course, uh, we'll all say North Korea, where when you say uh, Christians are really a threat, the Bible is considered to be a tremendous threat in a place like North Korea, where people who are caught with the Bible actually risk being executed because they are in possession of a book which is considered to be uh, in ways uh, that uh, will undermine the the communist state, this is how serious persecution is, and and that's a that's a high example of of the value of the Bible, the value of Christian believers. Uh, the Bible is of enormous benefit to believers across the world, and I think it's sad in many ways that in the West we probably have more Bibles sitting around unopened, unread. Uh, then there are Bibles in some of these countries we talk about. And so part of the 
the role of Barnabas Fund in, in providing practical aid. Yes, we provide food and yes, we provide um, other uh, necessary resources. We're also involved in uh, training leaders and uh, maybe in our conversation today we could get on to some of the things that Barnabas Fund is doing in training leaders uh, for churches and Christian literature, which has been proven over the years when people open the Bible, uh, they read truth, they read God's word, and lives are changed because of it. So when we distill the reading that we do in the Bible, eventually it gets us to a place where we appreciate that freedom comes from God. Uh, that when you have an allegiance to God, the transcendent God, the God of the Bible, then you have a freedom that you don't have when you're under a human regime. The human regime wants to control. True freedom comes from God. So this idea of having the Bible, you know, that you might read it, that you might understand that you could have freedom apart from the oppressive nature of the controlling state, uh, that really puts the Bible in a subversive sort of a, a place. So this is why the Bible is so important, because people who read it will begin to understand that there is a higher liberty than what is being offered by the oppressive states. And not only the oppressive states, but even in terms of Western democracies, we need to, as followers of Jesus, recover, uh, in a sense, the uh, the fact that there are inalienable God-given rights. Now, this might be a, a, a not a very good time to start using those words because they come out of the American Constitution, and this is a divided time in America, but they're good words because they recognize that our freedoms are not bestowed upon us by government. Uh, our freedoms are inalienable God-given rights that uh, it is not the role of government to give or to take away because as soon as we look to government as our saviour, and, and again, you know, in the context of coronavirus, there's a sense in which governments must do um, sensible things. Governments must do things that are for the good of the people. But we as uh, followers of Jesus need to recognise that there are limits on that authority and that uh, the Australian government, the Queensland government, the Western Australian government, the New South Wales government, they are not the ultimate authority. Uh, they are not the ones who either confer our freedoms uh, or who in fact are our saviour in any sense, but rather our saviour is the Lord Jesus Christ alone and our freedoms come from him. So our governments and the governments of the world think that they are the ultimate authority and when we are people who are able to distill some truth from the Bible, we recognise that no, they are not the ultimate authority and there are ways in which therefore we can influence the way truth exists, the way law comes into being and those are the sorts of things that bring a harmonious society and there's all sorts of things we could talk about in that and that's not our conversation today necessarily, but actually I want to pick up, just before we take a break, this idea of the fiery furnace. Uh, this comes from the book of Daniel chapter 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They were put into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow the knee to the oppressive non-godly governor. Uh, give us some insights here into the fiery furnace. Well, that's a great example of how uh, the Persian Empire, led by the Persian Emperor, took the view that he was the ultimate authority, that there was no authority above him. And so you've got to bow the knee to me. You've got to worship me effectively and me alone. And uh, those three friends of Daniel, young strapping lads who were taken off from Jerusalem into, uh, into captivity, they said, no, we are going to be faithful uh, to the one true God. 
And uh, if there are consequences, we are willing to pay them. Now, what I find really interesting uh, about that is that uh, their testimony was basically, uh, we believe that if you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God will uh, carry us through. But even if he doesn't, even if we go into that furnace and even if we find ourselves in this life perishing in the furnace, we will not submit to any authority but God alone. And so it's a way of saying um, whether things go well with me or whether things go poorly with me, whether there are good consequences uh, to my human life or whether there are poor consequences in this life, I will not submit to anyone but God alone. And if you take that attitude today, you may find yourself under persecution, bowing the knee to the controlling, governing power. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're talking about persecuted Christians around the world. We're talking about being free and we're talking about the contrast of what it is when those who are in particular circumstances around the world are not free at all, not free to worship, not free to proclaim the name of their God not free to share their faith with another because there may be a risk that they could be arrested, that they could be imprisoned, not free in some contexts, like in that context in North Korea, to even own the Bible, whereas I understand that people are memorizing Scripture and disposing of the Bible because if they are found with it, they risk being executed. This is how serious it is in the worst contexts, but there are lots of not quite the worst, but really oppressive contexts. Ashley Saunders is our guest. He's the CEO at Barnabas Fund. Ashley, let's just remain for a few minutes with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, those three young men taken into captivity. And the ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, is approached by those leaders who themselves are no doubt interested in their own power and uh, they say to the uh, the ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you've got this statue, you want everyone to bow down to it. And if everyone bows down, we'll know that they're all under the thumb. They're all doing what is lawfully right, according to the king. And those who don't bow down, we'll be able to see whether they, in fact, are uh, subversive and don't agree that you are the ultimate authority. This is important, Ashley, because uh, these sorts of things put the believer on the spot where they will either need to bow the knee or they'll stand for their God. And this happens in so many contexts around the world. Uh, yes, and um, even, even in places like Australia, it will happen in perhaps uh, subtle ways where you're asked whether you're going to take a stand or not. Uh, you might be um, uh, studying um, education and you might be asked a question about uh, something to do with um, uh, current transgender ideology and do you agree with this or not? Uh, how would you teach your students? And you need to make a decision. Am I going to uh, stand up for what I believe God would, would have me say or, or do I bend the knee to the local authority? Now, that's, that's a very subtle way compared to what's happening in other places. In China, for example, there are reports that uh, older citizens are having their pensions threatened unless they uh, remove their Christian symbols from their home. Uh, so when the, uh, the authorities come in and they see a cross, you, know, you either take that cross down, you either uh, remove that symbol, uh, or you might find yourself without a pension. And, uh, and so do I say yes or do I say no? 
uh, and and so that there's just two examples, one from the West, one from China. But what about uh, in, in other places like uh, Pakistan, for example, uh, where Christians are poor, Christians are uh, often discriminated against? Do I stand up for what I believe is right or do I suffer the earthly consequences for uh, admitting to my faith? I often say here in Australia we're very egalitarian. We like the idea of fairness. We like the idea that, you know, one might not have preference over another. But this can creep in very, very easily in this circumstance. As you mention universities, uh, who might be promoted to the head of that department? Well, not someone who's going to have an alternative idea that might ruffle some feathers the wrong way and threaten our funding. So uh, the right person gets elevated to the head of that department. Could happen in any business where a person who's elevated to a position of leadership uh, may well be uh, either threatened because they are a Christian or if they're not a Christian, they may be the ones quickly promoted. And that really it represents too a similar form of persecution too because, as you mentioned, those uh, issues about Pakistan. People are downtrodden and they're kept in poverty because they are not the right faith, so to speak. Yeah, and, and it's a very common experience. And um, uh, while we're talking about Pakistan, I might mention that uh, there was uh, there's a couple, a Christian couple in uh, Pakistan who have been on death row for six years. Now, when I was with you and your listeners some time ago, a couple of years ago, we were talking about Asia Bibi, who, thank God, was uh, was ultimately found to be not guilty, and she and her family have resettled in Canada. Uh, there's another Christian couple who uh, are on death row and have been for six years. The same lawyer who acted for Asia Bibi is acting for them. Uh, so uh, please can I encourage your listeners to pray not only for this couple whose story I will uh, tell in just a moment, but to pray also for this courageous Muslim lawyer who uh, at sometimes his own risk is acting for Christian couples. Uh, thank God for him and pray that he might come to know the Lord Jesus. So uh, they were on death row because they were alleged to have sent a text message that was blasphemous to the Islamic prophet. And there's only two problems. The first problem is that they are illiterate and they had no capacity to send the text message complained of. And secondly, the text message was sent in English, a language they neither speak nor understand. Now, their appeal was held last Friday, and as of today, we're still waiting on news of the outcome. And isn't it amazing that when you present that evidence that they'll be defending themselves with and we from our position can say well if that evidence is true surely how did they get to a position where they're going to be charged with these things in the first place and the sorts of grounds that charges are laid are so tenuous in so many of these circumstances and so even reflecting on Asia Bibi who were you know drank from the wrong cup I mean these sorts of things we might say it's crazy but when the religious mob gets a hold of an accusation, they run with it. And whether the courts order one decision or not, uh, the mob can rule. What are your thoughts here about just how significant it can be that people can make accusations and someone can be proven guilty before they've even faced the courts? Uh, sometimes it's the mob and sometimes it's an individual. So that there's another fellow in Pakistan who... Um, has uh, recently had a heart attack. He was sentenced to life imprisonment for blasphemy. And the, even though uh, blasphemy carries a death penalty, 
uh, it is said that the reason he was only sentenced to life imprisonment is because there was no credible evidence against him. So get that. Um, instead of saying there's no credible evidence against him, we will let him off. We will accept that he's not guilty. There's no credible evidence against him, and therefore uh, we will sentence him to life imprisonment. Um, but this is not just a modern pheno- phenomenon. Uh, remember, for example, all the way back to the Genesis with Joseph, uh, where Joseph is sold into slavery, and uh, he finds himself in a position of authority in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife uh, lusts after this young, strapping Hebrew lad, and uh, Joseph is faithful. And Joseph says, I'm not going to dishonor my God, and I'm not going to dishonor your husband uh, by giving in to your demands. And so she frames him. And so as he flees her advances, she takes his coat and basically holds it up crying rape, saying, look what this Hebrew slave was doing to me. She was so offended that he would not go to bed with her that she frames him as a result of which uh, he goes into prison for many years. And so it is not a new happening. It's been happening for centuries, for millennia. Okay, we'll talk about these people being like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so coming back to what we want to really touch on today is how do we meet the needs? And we're talking physically, we're talking emotionally, we're talking spiritually, meeting the needs of people who are in these persecuted contexts today. And uh, when you've got a new resource, a new initiative, that's why it's worthy of really celebrating that. But uh, we have to be aware first and then able to act on how we can support those needs. Uh, People like that are in the fiery furnace. And this question I'm asking today, who's responsible to help here? I know it's, you know, the the fingers are pointing at us, aren't they? Uh, Give us your insights here into how we might uh, meet those needs physically, emotionally, spiritually for people who are under persecution. Uh, I can say today with a lot of humility and thanks to God that over the last several months, through the generosity of donors in Australia and in other countries, Barnabas Fund has helped to feed and keep alive over 600,000 vulnerable Christians who have been affected by locusts uh, or drought or famine or coronavirus or um, more more than one of those at the same time. And so uh, their testimony is, uh, I don't know who these people are who have um, fed my family. I don't know who these people are, but I thank God for them. And so there is a sense in which Uh, Those who are living through the fiery furnace uh, look to God. Now, sometimes you and I and uh, other humans as followers of Jesus can be the vehicle through which God works. But ultimately, uh, we are doing that in submission to God and the people who receive the benefit, whether that's uh, food or drink or water or or spiritual nourishment, uh, they ultimately thank God who has delivered them Uh, from whatever it is they're suffering. Our special guest this hour is Ashley Saunders. He's the CEO at Barnabas Fund in Australia. In fact, Ashley, uh, we're going to take a call in just a few moments, but, you know, you call yourself a peacemaker, a peace builder, uh, supporting the persecuted church. This is something that you've carried for a long, long time in your career across law and across uh, governance uh, in a local government setting and uh, into uh, the leadership of a Christian church, the Baptist church. Uh, this idea of being a peacemaker fits so well with what you do these days. Well, we're called to be a peacemaker, and uh, there's a big difference between making peace and peace faking. And, uh, and so uh, sometimes we're very good at peace faking by denying 
uh, the reality, but we can be active peacemakers by standing alongside people, by, uh, by seeking to be people who forgive as well as uh, people who can shine a light into dark places in a gentle way that helps reconciliation. So uh, these are all these are all biblical concepts, and, uh, and and so in the same way we can stand with those who are persecuted, and uh, perhaps in the course of this conversation we can also touch on how that when we open ourselves to the reality of those who are persecuted, when we stand with them, it's not one way, uh, it's two way because they serve us and they can help me grow in my walk with the Lord. We are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. You can also respond today to our Facebook question, if you were persecuted for being a Christian, who would you expect to help you survive? We're taking calls. Let's take one from Karen, who's in Melbourne. Hello, Karen. Welcome along. Hello. Karen, what are your thoughts? God bless you. Well, my thoughts is, I know that over thousands of years, the Christians have been ridiculed. And uh, I prayed every day for the Jewish people, all the Christians, and especially the ones that start to get persecuted now. I would not in my life bow down to a pope or bow down to anything. I bow down to the Lord Jesus and God, but I would not bow down to anybody else. All right, Karen. That's not right. And it's interesting that when you say Pope, some people will say, well, the Pope is a religious leader. Well, I suppose there's context in all of that and uh, certainly not an anti-Catholic conversation that we're having today. But Karen, good thoughts there. Let's get a thought from Ashley. Uh, Karen, can I simply affirm you that uh, we need, as followers of Jesus, to bow our knee to him and him alone. Uh, And uh, I guess one of the prayers that I often pray is that uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, will you empower me, do a work in me that in what I do, uh, I will lift high the mighty name of Jesus and glorify our Father in heaven. Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, said, whatever you eat, whatever you do, whatever you do, uh, do it all for the glory of God. And he doesn't say, do it all for the glory of God, except in this situation or except in that situation. And so on a daily basis, we have a choice to live in such a way that glorifies God or doesn't. And, you know, our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith in other lands, they are faced with that choice in much stark more ways than we are, and they know that their faithfulness in the face of persecution testifies powerfully to the truth of the claims of Jesus Christ. Karen, just to honour you because you said you pray for the persecuted believers every day. So. Uh, let me just honour you in that, because so easy, isn't it, to uh, to have the persecuted believers drop out of our thinking altogether. So if you have a little reminder. Yeah, I was thinking about Europe one time, about when the the Pope and the Catholics having the, the Christians in the cave and they threw them over the mountain. I think that place is still with the crosses or something. And that, I heard about it, but uh, I've never seen it or that. Karen, you know, you're getting into a different style of topic here because uh, down throughout history in the last 500 years, there have been religious wars between Protestants and Catholics and 
no doubt uh, there are going to be those sorts of stories uh, where Catholics persecuted Christian uh, Protestants and uh, it would have there'll be awful lot of stories too saying the other way around so uh, let's not get into a uh, revival of religious wars uh, particularly within Christianity that is a relevant topic to talk about but that's not so much what we're talking about today because when there's persecution and I'll get your thoughts here Ashley when there's persecution against Christians uh, oftentimes they're not uh, those persecutors are not differentiating whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic. Uh, you're a Christian and you stand for the truths of that book, the Bible, and uh, everybody's lumped into the one. We're all Christians together. Yes, that's right. And if you go to many countries in the world that identify as Islamic countries, because uh, if you go across as a uh, white Australian, for example, and I know that there are many Australians who don't fit that category, but just let me use that category for a moment. If you go looking like a Westerner, they will assume that you're a Christian. And uh, and so uh, in many of these places, they identify Christianity uh, with, uh, I guess, a Western population. And so even even for those uh, who are not identifying as Christians can be labelled as Christians when they go to some of these countries. Uh, and so for those who are living in these countries as followers of Jesus, life can be very difficult. Um, and uh, even in some places where on the face of it, on the surface, you've got certain freedoms, increasingly we're finding that there is intolerance, whether it's a, a Hindu form of nationalism in China, whether it's in a India. Buddhist for, uh, in India, sorry, whether it's a Buddhist form of nationalism in, uh, in, in Myanmar, whether it's a communist kind of nationalism in places like China and North Korea, we're finding that uh, when there's religion or other ideologies, uh, Christianity and Christians can be the common enemy. Karen, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You can respond to, to our Facebook question today. If you were persecuted for being a Christian, who would you expect to help you survive? Uh, let's come back to this idea of survival if you're under persecution. Uh, because we're not necessarily talking about ourselves being in that boat, but we are talking certainly about hundreds of millions of people around the world who are under this level of persecution. We were talking about those three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but there is an extra one that we can talk about here, and that, of course, is Daniel. And uh, these three are usually talked about as Daniel's friends. Daniel, who is this sort of, you know, very uh, statesman, senior-like uh, leader who's elevated to high positions, but he had his own issues here. Daniel's another one of these uh, examples, isn't he, of, uh, of not bowing the knee to the emperor? Yes, he is. And so after Babylon had been taken over by Persia, we find in um, uh, the city of Shush, the city of Susa, it's still there today in the uh, southwest of modern-day Iran. And uh, in that city, uh, Daniel found himself in a position of great influence. And what's interesting is that the locals who opposed him uh, looked for a fault in him. They wanted to find fault in him, and they basically said, we will not find fault in him except in the matter of his religion, in, except in the matter of his, his faith in Yahweh God, the one true God. Now, wouldn't that be a great testimony for you and me to have today? If people could look at us and look at each of your listeners who identifies as a Christian and say, I'm looking for fault in him or her, 
and uh, I wish that I could find a fault, but the only fault I can find uh, is his or her uh, belief in Jesus Christ. And so going back to Daniel, a similar thing sort of happened where uh, what they did, these people, they went to the king and said, uh, you know, you need to, you need not to pray, and all the rest of it. And Daniel was fa- found himself in the position where he either bowed the knee in a spiritual sense to the king whom he um, appreciated and worked for, or to bow the knee to God alone. And he was thrown in the de- in the lion's den. So uh, many of your listeners would be familiar with that story, how that he came out of the lion's den the next morning. Now, what many of your listeners would not be aware of is this. And that is that today in that city, in the modern um, Islamic Republic of Iran, is Daniel's tomb. So, you know, 3,000 years after Daniel lived, or thereabouts, there is this sacred place in this city. Now, I I had the privilege of being in that city 15 years ago, and the two uh, Old Testament things that are in that city, firstly, there's the remains of the palace where Esther was queen, and then... A stone's throw from there is this monument that's Daniel's tomb. And if you were to go there today, you would find Iranian Muslims going into Daniel's tomb and removing their feet, their shoes because it's a sacred place and they would, be, they would be bowing and praying, giving thanks to their God for Daniel. They don't know why. The fellow who was, uh, was with us that day as a translator and interpreter uh, said, said to me, why do we revere Daniel, a Jewish prophet? when we don't like the Jews. And I said to him, do you want to know? And uh, he said, yes. And I said, would you let me read from um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Daniel? And he said, yes. And I read to him the proclamation of the king after Daniel came out of the lion's den that the God of Daniel is the one true God. And uh, and he was amazed. He'd never heard that. But um, there's testament to legacy. Now, for you and me, Neil, and for the listeners uh, who are, Uh, listening in today, we might never know what our legacy of faithfulness is. The people who are persecuted in Nigeria or Algeria or in uh, Uganda, in North Korea, they may never know what their legacy is. But there is a legacy of faithfulness which can be born out in the lives of your children and, and pray God, born out in the lives of nations as they are ultimately transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me introduce a little diversion here and hopefully not take us too far off track because I want to come back to this uh, new resource that you've got for people who are in the fiery furnace. But it brings us into the picture when we recognize that those advisors to Nebuchadnezzar, those advisors who would say to the emperor, we can't find any other dirt on this man, Uh, we'd better attack his religion. When we have in our own nation a debate around religious freedom and we see laws being established that people will say this becomes like lawfare, a way that we can uh, cause there to be a a weaponization of the courts to be used and we're seeing it being used against Christians – Is there a lesson here that we might learn from these stories, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and, and of course, Daniel, where the advisors are advising the king, this is what you do to be able to ensnare those Christians and try and get them out of their positions of influence. Any thoughts here? I'm sometimes asked uh, whether there is 
persecution in countries like Australia. And uh, even as I pose that question, there are some of your listeners who will say definitely yes, there are others who will say definitely no, and there might even be some who will get offended at the very question being asked, because what we're experiencing here in Australia is nothing like is experienced in these other countries we've been talking about. Uh, I guess my answer is that whether or not there is persecution, there is certainly prosecution. There is certainly uh, an approach that is using the mechanisms of the law to close down debate and discussion on topics that secular humanism, which is, I guess, in many senses, the new de facto civic religion of Australia, uh, which is a very intolerant religion, that if you offend its rules, uh, we want to close down debate. We want to close down discussion. We don't want there to be discussion about uh, particular topics, but rather just close it down. And so if we pick on some prominent people and, uh, and if we use the mechanisms of the law, then hopefully the people who are not prominent will simply uh, be quiet. Uh, they might do their worshipping in their church buildings, but nowhere else. Uh, and so uh, we see some of those, those, I would call them, attacks. And the lesson that we can learn from those who are more overtly persecuted is a lesson of faithfulness. When you speak to Christians in other lands who are persecuted, they rarely say, will you please pray that the persecution will stop? Most commonly they say, will you please pray that in the face of persecution we will be found faithful, that we will on a daily basis make decisions that honour God, whether it's on this point or that point, uh, that we will decide what are the things that we need in a sense to go to spiritual war over and what are the things that don't matter. Uh, how can we on a daily basis live out our faith in a way that testifies to the claims of Jesus Christ and pray God will also change the lives of our persecutors? And so they're the, they're the prayers that we'll be faithful and that our persecutors might come to know Jesus. And so that is a great example. As we open our hearts to the reality of those who are more overtly persecuted, they are great lessons for you and me to learn and for our listeners to learn that uh, I need on a daily basis in Holy Spirit power to decide what are the things that are not negotiable? What are the things that I will speak about? What are the things that I will choose not to speak about? And in doing all of that, that I might honour God and that my witness uh, might be effective in an eternal sense. Well, along these lines, Peter has r responded to our Facebook question today and says, at the rate legislation is changing... I doubt that the government will have any practical, tangible protection in place. The church institution is limited legally in what it could do in an ever-changing, secular, socialistic environment. I do not see Christians finding any favour here. Bringing us back to how we would resource persecuted Christians, if we're putting in our ourselves in the place of... Uh, of being persecuted, who would we hope might rise to the challenge of helping us? And and uh, there's someone who says, don't put your trust in the government here. The government's not going to come to your rescue. It's going to be believers who do whatever they can to uh, either support or comfort those who are in this dire persecution place. Uh, this is this brings us back to our question today and the way that you might resource. Uh, the persecuted church, Ashley. There's lots of ways that you can do that. And uh, prayer being the very start doesn't cost anything to pray, but it takes some commitment. Then it takes a little bit of extra commitment if you're going to take some action from that. 
Yes, that's right. And uh, going back to the fiery furnace, which has been the repeated theme of our conversation today, um, many of your listeners would be familiar with the fact that uh, although three were thrown in, that there was a fourth scene uh, in the fiery furnace. Now, there is some um, legitimate theological debate about whether that was God in human form, that is a pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ, or whether that was an angelic being. Uh, what um, is agreed by theologians is that this was a comforter sent by God. And so uh, we can be the physical comforter sent by God to stand with our brothers and sisters. When in Bangladesh in November of 2016, uh, Five and a half thousand Santal Christians had their homes destroyed, burnt to the ground. And there was one fellow, Dijin, there were uh, rubber bullets being fired. The police were part of it, unfortunately. And uh, in a photo that I've seen, Dijin holds his shirt up and shows the bullet wound, the scar uh, from where the bullet went in just above his heart and should have killed him, but he survived after medical treatment. And he went home to his village to find that he had no home to go to. Now, because of the generosity of uh, people who are being as Christ to these Santal Christians, uh, Barnabas Fund has been able to fund the construction of new one-room homes, and uh, we're into phase three of that construction building. And the point here is that in one photo, DGEN is standing in front of um, the, the new home, a one-room home that's been constructed because of the generosity of uh, people here in Australia and other lands, and he says... I don't know these people who have blessed me and my children, but I thank God that they are his vehicle or words to that effect. And so we can stand with people in the same way that um, God sent uh, either himself or an angelic being to be with those three in the furnace. And while those people will never know the names and addresses of people who gave generously to make those things happen, as you say, their only response that it has come through a Christian organisation is that they can thank God because by whatever miraculous means, and let's uh, put that word miraculous in there, and sometimes we talk about that in the sense of, you know, when you give and a surgery happens or uh, when something appears that meets someone's need, it is technically a miracle that's happening in the life of that person. So those people, they will give glory to God. And so when we do give of our practical ability, we're going to be actually helping people to give glory to God. There is a certain sense in which that does resource and builds faith in God in people who are going through persecution. Yes, that's right. And it is very biblical um, that um, when one part of the church suffers, we all suffer. And so I try not to talk about the suffering church over there, because uh, even if individual Christians and families and groups of Christians in other lands are suffering, we as a whole are suffering. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ is suffering. Uh, Paul said that uh, just because you're not a toe doesn't mean that, that you're not part of the body. And so in terms of the worldwide global body of Christ, we are all one uh, because of the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit and because one part uh, or maybe two parts uh, of the church is suffering, we are all suffering and we have the ability of serving each other and being part of the mechanism used by God to support and to enhance the lives of those of our brothers and sisters. Well, Ashley, drawing some things together here, because we're running out of time now, but persecution of Christian believers around the world is growing. In fact, it's a huge, huge issue, and 
perhaps beyond what any of us can uh, legitimately be able to think that we can uh, afford to, to help out those people who are in a persecuted sense. So it becomes, in some sense, a heart issue before God, what we give, that God might use what we do uh, to be a blessing in someone's life who's in a persecuted circumstance. Uh, we mentioned that Barnabas Fund is actually a huge ministry organization working in nations all around the world. And uh, there are some new resources, like we mentioned, BarnabasToday.com, uh, where people can just check in on uh, some spiritual growth uh, uh, articles and those sorts of things that have a two way conversation uh, us towards those who are in persecuted context and also hearing their stories so that we might be encouraged in our own faith here for people to give practically and to support the initiatives of Barnabas Fund what would you like people to do Ashley uh, people can go to um, the Barnabas Fund website so barnabastoday.com is the resource website uh, both for and from the persecuted church in terms of Barnabas Fund if you went to barnabasfund.org slash au that's the Australian Barnabas Fund website barnabasfund.org slash au and there you will have the ability to look at some of our resources to buy some books to subscribe to a magazine to make a donation and uh, uh, there if, if you're unable to do that you can ring our office am I able to give the phone number uh, yes, because I know that there are some listeners who don't have access to the internet. So uh, quickly grab a pen or a pencil and uh, and write this number down. So Ashley, hit us with the phone number. one three hundred three six five seven nine nine. I'll say that again. one three hundred three six five seven nine nine. And uh, our staff in the office in uh, Brisbane would love to hear from you. one three hundred three six five. 365 799. Ashley Saunders, honour to you uh, in your role as CEO of Barnabas Fund in Australia. Uh, with coronavirus right now, you're limited a little in your capacity to be able to stand before churches and groups uh, that you ordinarily would do. No doubt you're still a busy man through all sorts of uh, online Zoom opportunities and no doubt you're also available if uh, someone wants you to speak into their uh, church setting uh, via a Zoom meeting. You're able to do that? Yeah, all face-to-face. -face. I've done the last two Sundays face-to-face. -face. It's been great to actually be able to speak and see the faces of people again after six months of just doing it remotely. Okay, so barnabasfund.org.au. Ashley Saunders. Uh, slash AU. Slash AU. Yes, so barnabasfund.org slash AU. Uh, Ashley, thanks for joining us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.